Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. When I was in my early 20s, I moved to Japan to work as an English teacher and proofreader. I lived in a regional city about 90 minutes on the train from Nagoya. And this one morning, on my way to work by bicycle, just like the locals, I arrived at a train crossing moments too late and watched in frustration as the boom gates dropped ahead of me. As was often my want, I was running late for work, and so I waited with my hands on the safety barrier and the front tyre of my bike edging forward under it. There was a train stopped at the nearby station, bound for the city, and certain to move off at any second. Except it didn't. As the moments ticked by with no movement at the station, I looked off in the other direction, hoping to see an approaching train that would justify this interminable wait. But there wasn't one. A time check revealed I was fast slipping from merely running late into actually being late. My anger at the situation grew and grew. This station was stupid. The world was stupid. Clearly this technology was conspiring to set me back and shouldn't be tolerated. With a burst of adrenaline, I lifted up the boom gate and pushed me and my bike under it. As I passed the still stationary train, I saw in my periphery why the boom gates were still down. Hurtling towards me was a high-speed locomotive, previously hidden from my view by the train at the station. As it missed me by mere feet, I felt a rush of wind at my back. Had I waited another second before passing under the boom gates, then the train would have collected me. And if not me, then the back of my bike, which would have likely spun me around and into the train's path all the same. Because I'm arrogant and cocksure, I lifted up the boom gates on the other side and continued on my way as if nothing had happened, as if I had known all along what I was getting myself into. Pedestrians and drivers stared at me as I avoided their eyes, keeping a stoic visage so as not to let on that I was trembling inside. Fifty metres on, I stopped pedalling in a side street and sat on the ground, allowing what had just happened to wash over me. I've thought a lot about those moments since then about how close my life came to ending, in a second, in a blink, without me having any real knowledge of what was happening. I think about how fine that line is between living and being splattered over a Japanese railway. I think about the process the local authorities would have taken to identify my body and then notify my family. I think about what they would have gone through. I think about how my partner, who I was yet to meet, would never have known what had happened. He never would have known I even existed. And our daughter, our amazing daughter, who never would have been. But mostly, I think about how I didn't have any time to think at all. Had I been killed, my last thoughts wouldn't have been about my family, or my friends, or my life. My last thought probably would have been, ah, stupid me. I wonder what people think about when they have more time. Are they afraid, or content? Or angry? What does someone think about when they know they're going to die?
aghast the first time I stepped foot into an Aboriginal community at the conditions and the woeful state of health. This is Tim Duncan. I felt like a very privileged Australian in comparison and I thought, you know, this is how the other half lives and I, this is unacceptable. Like I, I remember I felt a, a responsibility to try and amend matters. Tim is a doctor and a filmmaker and back in 2008, he took a one-month position at a hospital in a place called Catherine in the Northern Territory. It's a town of about 6,000 people, many of them Indigenous, and it hugs the border between the outback and the tropics. It's flourishing green, particularly in the wet season, and it's fairly flat in parts, but you get towards the gorge, which is you know, undulating and rocky and, and rainforesty. And the gorge is the Catherine Gorge, a place of such amazing natural beauty that you really should check it out, even if it's just on Google. Toward the end of his month in Catherine, Tim's girlfriend, Hannah, came up to meet him. They had met on the set of one of the short films he had made. She asked me out. I wasn't the creepy director who said, hey, I just want to run a few lines by you to come back to my place. It was after the film was over, she... Uh, he suggested we go out for a drink if it wasn't too out of the blue and uh, didn't look back. Their best laid plan was for Tim to finish up at the hospital and then they'd spend a few days in the nearby Kakadu National Park before driving on to Darwin to catch up with Hannah's cousin and then back to Melbourne where they both called home. And after that, who knows? And we got this hire car to go back to Darwin, a big Toyota Prado tough as nails, nothing all uh, happened to that. It, it was really exciting. Like, you know, when you finish primary school or something, you, you f a, a chapter's closed and you don't know what's coming in the next chapter. It's a blank page. You know, anything could happen. On the Human Ordinary podcast, I'm Sam Loy, and this is the Headstone Series. We were driving along the West Arnhem Highway at this point, sort of Kakadu, Yellow River at our back. There's gravel, you know, for a metre or two on either side of the bitumen, but there was really only enough room for one car on the bitumen. The sun was setting at their backs, and Tim was driving cruising their car along at 130 kilometres an hour. And while it is the speed limit in some parts of the Northern Territory, that is pretty fast. We both sort of were complicit in that. She really wanted to see her cousin. I was a man who thought nothing can touch me and, and I didn't want to waste time going below the speed limit. If it's 130, I should go at 130, even if it's a single lane highway. They had one of Hannah's mixtapes playing on the stereo. But Tim just wanted to listen to the cricket. Hannah hated cricket and she hated the sound of cricket commentary as much as anything in the world. They'd been here before. Like any couple, they had their little joke disagreements about insignificant things, light-hearted tiffs they would have for fun. And so Hannah refused to put the cricket on and Tim insisted and Hannah refused. 
and then Tim decided to do it himself. I'm not even 100% there was a game on, but I definitely took my eyes off the road. I was looking at the radio and scrolling along, trying to get any reception to anything. It was fairly random, my search, and I think I was looking up from time to time, but I can't confidently remember. And as I'm tuning and hearing the static, Hannah screams out, Timbo! With Tim's eyes on the stereo, he had begun to veer the car to the left side of the road. But when she sort of cried out, I was in another world. So when I snapped out of it, I, I just, I overcompensated. And so as soon as I had pulled down to the right, uh, the car was out of control. It's a big car, a high center of gravity. So I pulled back to the left, pulled back to the right, and we're fishtailing, hitting the gravel. The lead up to a crash, it's not noisy. There's no screaming. Everything's quite quiet. I couldn't hit the brakes because we weren't on straight road. It was about steadying the ship. But that unsteadiness didn't make a loud sound. It was just a disquiet inside me. And the, the last movement I made was to pull the steering wheel back down to the left. And that spun out the back wheels and we were perpendicular to the road and the car couldn't cope with that. I remember the road, I remember my arm going up and then it was just black. We'll be right back with Tim's story after this short break. So Tim and Hannah were in trouble. After Tim had lost control of the car, it rolled six times, finally coming to rest upside down, about 30 metres off the road. And then, after a couple of minutes of unconsciousness, Tim woke up. I felt shit-ass. He was upside down. He was disorientated. Blood was coming from somewhere. And to top it all off, petrol from a severed fuel line was spraying up his nose. I could barely breathe. I could feel broken bones all over my body, in my shoulder, in my chest, in my head, in my hands. Next to him, Hannah was alive and in a much better state than he was. I think she asked if I was okay and my speaking indicated that I was not okay, but I was alive, which she hadn't thought for the last couple of minutes. I, th I asked her, was that real? And she said, yep, uh, in a very understated way. Her left foot had somehow got stuck in the door which had opened and slammed shut during the accident. The, the car was a mangled mess and the, the door had been crushed from so many sides that it just it was very difficult to open. The danger that both of them saw was the very real possibility that the petrol might catch a light with them still inside. Despite the pain and disorientation, Tim had to get them out. I couldn't find my seatbelt move my body enough to really go in detailed search of it. I asked Hannah if she could find it and release me. I wasn't quite prepared, so I fell down into the roof, hitting my head again, sort of landing in a pool of my own blood and petrol. I squirmed over to the what was left of the door, managed to open it and get out. Once Tim was on his feet again, he began to feel woozy. He could still walk, so he felt a small sense of relief that he had no leg injuries. He moved around to Hannah's side and went about trying to get her out. I went to grab the door with my right arm and realised I couldn't move it. My fingers were wiggling, but I just couldn't move my arm. 
So I started using my left one because I was tugging on the door handle with my left arm with everything I had. She was able from the inside to um, work Jimmy it open with a tennis racket that I'd had in Catherine and we were able to open enough for her to free her foot. The car was so badly damaged that Hannah had to crawl across the back and out the boot over their clothes and broken glass from a six-pack of beer they had. With Hannah now out, they moved away from the car in case it was still going to blow. She was shocked at the sight of him. She could see blood pissing out the back of my head like a hose. The pain he felt elsewhere had distracted Tim from this, but he was losing blood fast. So I couldn't really appreciate it, but from the look on Hannah's face and from the way I was feeling, I knew it, was, knew it wasn't good. So she tried to cover it up with her hand, but the blood just seeped around her fingers. So she ran back to the car and found the towel that we'd swiped from the Kakadu caravan park we'd stayed at the night before. And she came back to me and wrapped it around my head like Lawrence of Arabia. It didn't fit very well, but it did stop the blood flow. Tim was having trouble breathing, and so Hannah raced back to the car to find their phones. She couldn't find mine, and then when she found hers, and the battery was flat, in frustration she threw the phone away into the bushes. And while this was going on, Tim was on his knees, discovering how bad his condition was. I couldn't take anything more than the shallowest of breaths. I gasped to try and get some more air in, but as I did it, I sort of coughed in reflex. Out came this blood and splattered on my hands. I'm sort of staring at my mortality. Like, this isn't just a cool story I can tell now about how close I came. This is very symbolic and irreversible and true. Like, I was really confronted with death and the feeling that, yeah, it was coming. It was, it was coming for me. Then when Hannah came back from the car, Tim hid the blood by wiping his hands on his shorts. She didn't need that extra burden of... She didn't need to worry that I was d dying sooner than perhaps she thought. And then I feel like I heard a car. Off the, I didn't know where the road was from there. I couldn't see it, but I could hear a car. Hannah raced to the road, but nothing was there. Whether there was any car in the first place is anyone's guess. But she stayed at the roadside in case a car did come along. Now alone, Tim continued to struggle for air. Every ounce of energy was spent trying to draw breath, and so he laid down, pulling himself a few metres to be closer to a nearby tree. And then, as any doctor would, he assessed his injuries. I could walk and I could feel my hands and feet, so I reasoned I didn't have a spinal cord injury, which was a plus, but I knew I must have had some serious chest trauma. Maybe I'd punctured my lung or both. I certainly had rib fractures on both sides. I didn't want to cough up any more in case it precipitated a massive hemorrhage and I'd bled to death. I couldn't move my right arm and that was in a lot of pain, but I didn't think that would kill me. And Hannah was quite concerned about my head laceration, so I reached around to feel how that was going. And as I reached towards the back of my head, I, I felt my ears and there was something warm and fluidy there. And I put my fingers in my ear and had a look at that. I was bleeding out my ears. I must have a skull fracture or a serious head trauma. But despite this, and all his other injuries, Tim felt that it was his chest that would be the killer. And then, he heard in the distance, the drone of a car engine coming down the highway. He briefly allowed himself to think that everything was going to be alright. But as quickly as the car came towards us and that drone got louder and louder and higher pitched, whoosh, in an instant it was, it was leaving again. Hannah called out to me, 
It didn't stop Timbo. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tim lay there in disbelief. Hannah became more determined to find help and headed off down the road. She called out every so often to make sure Tim was okay. And as her voice became more distant, Tim knew he was pretty far from okay. It wasn't just his physical injuries, because as that car continued along the highway, it took with it the last remnants of Tim's hope. My mum always taught me, you know, expect the worst, hope for the best. But at this point, I was starting to feel that it was a bit more hopeless and I was out of control of my own destiny. I was now resigned to my fate and I went through quickly, you know, not like people talk about the your whole life flashes before you. I sort of flicked through it like a magazine and just picked out a few meaningful moments and and people that had touched it shaped it it wasn't perfect I'm far from perfect and I was far from satisfied with how far I'd got I was 28 I'd had a reasonable innings I'd done things I wanted I'd studied medicine I'd worked as a doctor I'd gone to film school I tried to follow my heart and make a difference I was sort of happy with my efforts at least even if I was a bit embittered that it had come to this and this was the end. Uh, I don't think there were time for regrets. It was a time to nurture everything good in my life. I guess it turns out that these petty hang-ups and annoyances and ugliness is meaningless. Like It doesn't amount to anything. Like I can be quite critical about myself. I wasn't getting down on myself and, you know, you should have just kept your eyes on the road. I was in this situation and it was time to say goodbye and it shouldn't be a, an angry or a remorseful thing. It just should be a, a farewell. I had to let it go. I had to reconcile my existence. I had to be at peace with it. And if, if I wasn't going to have loved ones around me, I was going to surround myself with them in my head. And, you know, I look back to, you know, when I was at kindergarten and primary school and I thought about my friends and, and moments where I had an arm around a shoulder and I was uh, loved and I had loved. It was all like they were coming to pay tribute, say goodbye. And any disagreements or fracas we'd had over the time was, was sort of forgotten. And the important thing was how we meant something and we supported each other. I thought about relationships, I, I thought about Hannah, but I also thought about other people I'd been with and, you know, special moments. And I was happy with the people that had been in my life and the feeling that I had contributed something to theirs. I thought about my family, my sister, my parents. You know, we have more disagreements than everyone disagrees with their family, <laughs> has fights. And you don't necessarily sing each other's praises constantly, but they were right there. I felt the strength of our connection and the strength of my family and 
and that that matters. And it uh, it gave me great. It gave me the ability to die feeling happy. I wasn't happy that I was dying, but I was happy that I'd had them. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard to, hard to know when the emotions all overtake you. And with his goodbyes made, with his loved ones imagined around him, Tim drifted into unconsciousness for what he thought would be the last time. And then I was awoken, something nudging me in the side and... I opened my eyes and there this indigenous face was looking down on me. He saw me open my eyes and, you're right, brother? And I emphatically stated, no, I'm not all right. I'm dying. He was defiant and said, well, you're right, brother. Now, Tim didn't know who this guy was or his two companions he could see in the background. But there was something about what he had said. You're all right, brother. It may have been due to the situation he found himself in, but Tim didn't just take it as one of those reassuring plaudits you give to people to make them feel better. Suddenly, it felt like these guys were giving me the gift of life again. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And yet, they were the most intimate connection I had to life. And their optimism, their dismissal of my claims on death, I guess I bought it. So what had happened was that Hannah had run down the road in the direction of some abandoned cars. She didn't really think anyone would be there, but she had to do something. As she was heading down the highway, another car came along, and this one stopped. Inside were three Indigenous men, but they didn't have a phone either. So they started driving her to the nearest town for help. Along the way, a second car approached and they flagged it down. Fortunately, the occupant was a local woman with intimate knowledge of the medical services out there, and she did have a phone. Two ambulances were called, and Hannah was told she had to stay still and rest while they waited. The three men were sent back to check on Tim to make sure he was still alive. It was that moment of connection. It was like someone reached out into the afterlife and pulled me back, and it was this guy and his friends. Even though they didn't intervene or do anything... They woke me up and they said it was going to be okay and it shouldn't have been. Out of the faintest distant part of my imagination, these three men came and said, nah, you're not going anywhere. The men stayed with Tim until the ambulance arrived. He has a memory of them waving goodbye as he was driven away, but he's not sure if that was real or a pain-fueled hallucination. The ambulances carrying Tim and Hannah took off for Jabiru. It was about 100 kilometres away, but it was the closest town with medical facilities and an airstrip. Another doctor was flying the 250 kilometres in from Darwin and would arrive in Jabiru not long after them. In the ambulance, Tim read the faces of the medics and saw they were flushed with concern at his condition. As they worked and discussed his vital signs, Tim understood everything. He had lost about two litres of blood and the oxygen in his bloodstream had fallen to near fatal levels. As a doctor and a realist, he knew how deep into the woods he still was 
but at least he was moving in the right direction out. And so on they raced, and on Tim fought, his battered lungs taking in whatever oxygen they could. He asked for some morphine to ease the pain so he would find it easier to breathe, but he was denied. They needed doctor's permission for that, and it was understandably unethical for Tim to satisfy this requirement himself. As soon as they arrived in Jabiru, Tim was given a blood transfusion, but still his chest ached, and his breathing hadn't improved. When the doctor arrived from Darwin, she immediately listened to his chest. And she couldn't hear breath sounds on my left and maybe just a little bit on my right. Tim had a punctured lung. And what happens with a punctured lung is that the air seeps out and into the chest cavity. With nowhere to go, that air begins building up and putting pressure on the lung from the outside. Eventually, it puts so much pressure on the lung that it can't expand and can't take in any air. People with this injury need the pressure released, and the best way to do this is by putting a vent into their chest. And the GP on call was uncontactable. You know, gone fishing or something, just wasn't answering his phone, and, and he had the local anaesthetic that would be needed for any procedures or operations that needed to be done there. So they lifted up my left arm, and without any local anaesthetic, made this big incision through my rib cage and then dissected it out with a finger, poked into my chest, felt around, could feel my lung, and then got a two centimetre wide tube and shoved it right in there. I'd already experienced pain to this point, but this was out of this world. Even as much as it was helping save my life, everything in my body was saying, stop this, stop this. Now with his lungs able to breathe again and new blood circulating his system, Tim took a major step out of those woods. He asked after Hannah and was told that she was doing fine, much better than he, but it wasn't until they were both on the hospital plane back to Darwin that they were able to speak for the first time since she went to the road looking for help. In the end, Tim had punctured both lungs, fractured seven of his ribs, sustained a skull fracture as well as the big gash in the back of his head, shattered his scapula, broke one of his index fingers, and somehow had managed to sever the tendon of his other index finger. Hannah had a fractured collarbone, as well as a severely banged up left ankle where it had been trapped in the car door. But they were alive. Tim spent another 10 days at Royal Darwin Hospital, and even though she had been discharged straight from the emergency ward, Hannah spent every night on a fold-out bed next to him. Tim's recovery took months, but once he was ready to start working again, he felt inspired to do more with his medical career. So he got extra qualifications in anaesthetics and rural and remote medicine. He focused his energies on giving back the level of care that he was given and got a job with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. I mean, I'd always revered it as a child and as a medical student and as a junior doctor, but it was the perfect thing for me to do. The Flying Doctors is a medical service that uses a fleet of light aircraft to provide emergency care to people in remote parts of the country. I mean, I see people, car accident victims, heavy machinery trauma or other traumas in remote places that all are reminiscent of my own experience. And were it not for retrieval doctors and nurses across the country, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have lived. And every time I see someone like in that situation and I see their gratitude, it makes everything worthwhile. It makes everything make sense. 
Tim says that he wouldn't be working for the Flying Doctors were it not for the crash. Life would have pulled him in a different direction, perhaps into filmmaking full-time, or maybe overseas with an aid organisation like Medicine Sans Frontières. And in this respect, his experience did change his life. But Tim also sees a distinction between the things we do with our days and the people we are. I think it's a bit like when I went travelling and I had all these new experiences and got exposed to new things and I came back different with a commitment to being more friendly, accepting and fun-loving. I became almost like the best version of myself I could be. But then slowly, bit by bit, my complexity, my human flaws and my ordinariness came through again. Even an event that shakes you to your very core doesn't change your core. You know, you, you hear people say, oh, I re read this book, it changed my life. I almost died. It, it didn't really change my life. You know, I've, I made a pledge not to drive at all in a dangerous way ever since that. But, you know, there are moments I've looked at my phone or I've gone too fast or I've driven when a bit tired. The first birthday present I got after the accident was from my mum, which was a voucher for a defensive driving course. And that's changed my driving techniques more than this experience. I'd love to say I'm a better person now, but I don't think I'm a different person, so I can't be any better. I can't stop myself getting frustrated at times and being short-tempered and cutting people off and being judgmental and refuting reasonable claims and being argumentative and egotistical. I still love the cricket. I still have petty arguments. I've remained this sort of stubborn, indecisive person that I've always been. It's put me on another path, perhaps, but yeah, I am who I am. I want to thank Tim Duncan for his patience, time, and willingness to share his story. I think I really put Tim through the ringer and I am eternally grateful. Tim also makes films from time to time with his production company, Doctored Films. You can check out his stuff at doctoredfilms.com. Thanks also to Hannah Moore for her help in filling in some of the gaps in the timeline and to Declan Fay for the introduction. This was the last episode in the Headstone series and the last in the current season of Human Ordinary. I want to thank everyone who was involved with one of the stories, listened and supported the show this year, and especially those who wrote me to say how much they connected with one of the episodes. Your emails were honestly the best part of this year. Thanks to John Chiha, Miles Martignoni, Selena Shannon, Leah Tao, and Declan Fay for their ongoing support, help, and advice and Layla Brook for making it all possible. And finally, all of the music that you have heard this year was composed by the great Kent Sutherland. Kent kicks ass. Be like Kent. We'll be back in a few months with some more stories about how extraordinary it is to be ordinary. As always, you can like the Facebook page to keep up to date and check out the website, humanordinary.com, for more information on the stories. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.